The Old Testament reading for today is Psalm 149. The sermon text is 1 Timothy 4, 6-16. You might want to open there. Uh, typically we have the text up on the screen. I'm not sure that it will be uh, this morning. Psalm 149. Would you hear now the reading of God's most holy word? Psalm 149. Praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song. His praise in the assembly of the godly. Let Israel be glad in his maker. Let the children of Zion rejoice in their king. Let them praise his name with dancing, making melody to him with tambourine and lyre. For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He adorns the humble with salvation. Let the godly exalt in glory. Let them sing for joy on their beds. Let the high praises of God be in their throats and two-edged swords in their hands to execute vengeance on the nations and punishments on the peoples, to bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron, to execute on them the judgment written. This is honor for all His godly ones. Praise the Lord. 1 Timothy 4, 6-16 through 16 is the sermon text for today. Paul writes to Timothy saying, If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness, for while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have set our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things, immerse yourself in them, so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so you will save both yourself and your hearers. So far the reading of God's most holy word. May He add His blessing to the preaching of it this morning. This is one of those passages in 1 Timothy, which is very specifically and directly addressed to Timothy. Now, of course, the whole letter is addressed to him. But you have noticed that there are some portions of this letter in which Paul speaks of things more generally. But here he is very direct, saying to Timothy, If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. And then later, and train yourself for godliness, etc. It is a very personal passage. Paul writes to Timothy very directly here. But it would be a terrible mistake to assume that there is nothing here for us. Most certainly is something here for us. This letter was not meant to be read by Timothy alone. I want for you to think about this. Uh, Timothy knew that it was not just for him alone. Uh, He did not read this letter to him in his study and then stick it in the drawer, right? But somehow this letter came to belong to the church. 
the church in Ephesus, and it was circulated around to where we have it now in our canon. It came to be in the canon uh, very early. We have this letter in the canon of Scripture because Timothy knew that this was not supposed to be read by him alone, but it was to be shared, it was to be preserved, it was for the whole church, therefore. That is why we have this letter in our possession today. This letter was to be shared and preserved within the church. It was to be read by the members of the churches throughout every age. It was to be read by the ministers within the church. Paul wrote this letter to Timothy in such a way that it would function as a guide for all ministers of the gospel and for all church members. And that is why we are studying it as we are here in these modern times. When I read 1 Timothy 4, 6-16, I do hear a kind of job description for pastors. It is not a thorough job description. The Scriptures have more to say about pastors concerning what they are to do, but it does sound kind of like a job description. Uh, Timothy is being told here by Paul, here is what you are to devote yourself to. Do this. Do not neglect this. Again, this passage doesn't say it all, but it does say an awful lot. First of all, notice that pastors are called to teach. That is the first point of the sermon today. Pastors are called to teach. In verse 6, we read, If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. The word translated as put means to give instruction. Timothy is here exhorted to give instruction to the brothers. And the word translated as brothers refers not only to the men in the congregation, but to the women also. Brothers is here a reference to all of the siblings who are in Christ Jesus. And what are these things to which Paul refers? Do you notice those words? Put these things before the brethren. If you put these things before the brothers, Paul says, what are these things? These things are the truths to which Paul has just mentioned in his letter. More generally, these things are all of the good and true doctrines of the faith. You will notice that Paul mentions the words of the faith and the good doctrine at the end of verse 6. And so this is what Paul has in mind. Timothy, as a minister of the word in Ephesus, would be considered a good servant of Christ Jesus. And after all, isn't that what we all want to be considered? A good servant of Christ Jesus. He would be one if he would put these things, the good and true doctrine, before the brethren. That is why I say simply that pastors are called to teach as ministers of the Word of God. Paul revisits this theme in verse 11, saying, Command and teach these things. That is very direct, isn't it? Command and teach these things. To command means to give orders. And so pastors will need to teach with authority. And to teach means to instruct. This will require a pastor to explain the doctrines of the Christian faith. In other words, he is not merely to command, saying, live this way, or believe this doctrine. No, instead, the pastor must also give instruction. He must explain the faith. He is, he is to convince people of the faith and to urge them to follow Christ in, in the whole of life. This he is to do through personal interaction. But Paul does seem to have formal teaching in mind. 
The pastor is to command the congregation to live and to believe in a particular way. And this he is to do through the teaching ministry of the church. Or we might say this he is to do from, from the pulpit. In verse 13, Paul elaborates and clarifies saying, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. This is what you are to devote yourself, Timothy, to. You are to devote yourself to this as a minister of the Word of God. You are to devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. We do know that Paul desired to come to Ephesus. Whether he did after writing this letter, we do not know for sure. Chances are he did not. And perhaps it is true that Timothy therefore remained at Ephesus permanently, becoming a bishop or overseer of the church there. But in any case, Paul exhorted Timothy to devote himself to certain things as a minister. Give yourself to this. He was to continue steadfastly in the public reading of Scripture. And so clearly Paul had the public worship gatherings of the church in mind. When the church assembled for worship, one of the things Timothy was to devote himself to was the public reading of Holy Scripture. I think it is very important for us to read the Scriptures aloud whenever the church assembles. Don't grow tired of this, brothers and sisters. It is a very important thing that we do to open up God's Word and to read the Scriptures, to simply read them. You know that our custom here at Emmaus is to read from the Old Testament and the New prior to the sermon. And the Scriptures are also read at the beginning, middle, and end of our public worship. The Word of God must permeate and inform all that we do on the Lord's day. The Word of God informs our praying. The Word of God informs our singing. The Word of God, of course, informs our preaching. The Word of God even gives meaning to the sacrament. And so how important it is for the Scriptures to simply be read so that the congregation is regularly exposed to God's most holy word. Not only was Timothy to read the scriptures to the congregation, he was also to exhort from the scriptures. To exhort is to encourage. And exhortation will take different forms. Sometimes a minister will gently encourage the congregation. Sometimes the minister will encourage the congregation with firm words or perhaps even a rebuke. But the point is this, not only are ministers to read the Scriptures, they are also to exhort from the Scriptures. Or to use terminology more familiar to us, they are to apply the Scriptures to the congregation. Ministers do not speak or write God's Word as the apostles and prophets did. No, they are to read the Scriptures and they are to offer exhortation from the Scriptures. In other words, they are to minister to the congregation the Word of God. And the Word of God must change us, brothers and sisters. What good does it do to read or to hear the Scriptures if we do not then ask, how should this truth change us? How should this truth change us? In fact, I would say it is a very dangerous thing to be consistently exposed to the Word of God and to not ask, how should this, how should this truth change us? I think if we do that, our hearts will grow hard to God and to His Word. The Scriptures must be applied. We must ask, how should this truth change us? How should it change the way that I think? How should it change the way that I feel? 
How should it change the way that I speak? How should it change the way that I act? We must apply the Word of God thoroughly to our own lives, even to our own souls. The Scriptures must be applied. And ministers of the Word must be faithful to follow the reading of the Scriptures with some exhortation or encouragement. When we think of the application of Scripture, we do tend to think of an exhortation to change the way that we act or speak. Isn't that true? If I say, be sure to apply the Word of God to your life, do you not naturally, or at least most quickly, think of, yes, I must change the way that I speak, or I must change the things that I do, external things. And indeed, we are to apply the Scriptures to external things. And so it is right for a minister to say, based upon what we have just heard, do this, or speak in this way. But it is also important for a minister to say, based upon what we have just heard, think this way, or even feel this way, believe this way. These are things that take place not outside of us, but within us. Sometimes application will be directed towards words and deeds, but often it will be directed towards the inner man, towards beliefs, thoughts, and feelings. And I felt compelled to say to you this morning, do not grow weary, brothers and sisters, of application that is directed towards the heart and the mind. Do not grow weary of it. Do not grow weary of hearing, brothers and sisters, this is how you should think, or this is what you should believe, even this is how you should feel in Christ Jesus. After all, after all, we do speak and act based upon what is in the mind and the heart. And so, in my opinion, the best kind of exhortation from God's Word will say, this is what you should think, believe, and even feel based upon the truth of Holy Scripture, because that will bring lasting transformation to us when we, in fact, change to the core. Friends, God changes His people from the heart. He transforms us by the renewal of our mind. And so, if you wish to be a better husband and father, wife or mother, practically speaking, indeed a better Christian man or woman, in practice... Then apply God's word to your heart and mind and do not grow weary of exhortation that says this is how you should think or this is what you ought to believe. Timothy and all ministers of the word with him are to devote themselves to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation and also to teaching. To teach is to instruct. It is to cause someone to learn. And how important it is for a pastor to teach. Not only is he to say, this is how you should speak, act, or think, but this is, what you should, but this is why you should speak, act, and think in this way. Instruction is needed within the church. And really, we should not be surprised that pastors are called to teach. For this was a very essential part of the commission that Christ gave to His disciples. Remember, how Jesus came to His disciples before His ascension and commissioned them with these words, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to Me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And so teaching sound doctrine and obedience to sound doctrine is a vital part of the work of the ministry. It is, it is one thing that simply must happen within the Christian congregation if we are to be faithful to the commission that Christ 
has given to us. We must teach. And I wonder, have you ever heard it said of a pastor? Maybe a, a well-known pastor. Well, he is more of a preacher than a teacher. Have you ever heard that said of a pastor? Or, well, he is more of a teacher than a preacher. I actually haven't heard this in a while, but I used to hear it. And I know what it means. It has to do with the style of the preacher, doesn't it? It has to do with the style of the preacher. He's more of a preacher than a teacher. He's given more to, to preaching, I guess, maybe more to exhortation than to instruction, or he's given more to instruction than to exhortation. But I don't think we should talk this way. I don't think it's helpful. It gives the impression that some pastors are called to be preachers and others are called to be teachers or that preaching and teaching are two different things. They are not two different things. Preaching involves teaching, or at least it should. All ministers of the gospel are called to publicly read the scriptures, to exhort the congregation from the scriptures, and to teach the scriptures. Again, perhaps some would like to call the exhortation preaching and the teaching teaching. But what I want you to notice here is that these things, these two things, are not separated. Pastors are to exhort through teaching, and they are to teach with authority. Command and teach these things, Paul says. Teach these doctrines. As I was reflecting upon this text this past week, I was reminded of something else that I used to hear a lot of but not so much anymore. Back in the day when we first planted Emmaus, and in the year leading up to that, I remember hearing even pastors say, well, I personally believe those doctrines to be true, but I don't preach them to the congregation. I remember hearing that. Now, those who know our history will be able to guess that the doctrines being referred to were the doctrines of grace, or the so-called five points of Calvinism. And I remember thinking to myself, and even saying from time to time, how strange that a minister of the gospel would believe something as important as the doctrines of grace to be true, and yet withhold these doctrines from the people of God. How strange. How wrong, I think. And I can guess why a minister would choose to withhold these doctrines. Perhaps he is concerned that they will produce conflict within the church. Or perhaps he is concerned that people will be offended and leave. Or perhaps he is not willing to put in the hard work required to teach these truths. But the question remains, if these doctrines are found in Scripture, then isn't it the job of the minister to read those texts which teach them, to teach these texts, that is to explain them, and to exhort the members of the church to believe them and to order their lives accordingly? Isn't that his job, according to the Scriptures? Isn't that the job description that we find here, even in 1 Timothy 4? Often ministers will assume that the congregation is not willing to receive these doctrines or some others. And so the teaching is withheld. And sadly, in these churches, the tail wags the dog. I should offer a brief word of clarification here before moving on. I am not at all critical of a pastor who is determined to teach sound doctrine patiently and over time. I am not at all critical of that. I think it is good for a minister to take the long view. It is wise for a minister to assess his congregation, to identify areas of weakness, and to address those weaknesses in the right way and at the right time. 
This patient approach is commendable, and I think it is biblical. I think Paul commands this approach in 2 Timothy 4.2 when he says, Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. I think this is what Paul is encouraging. It is good for a minister to take the long view, to be patient and to seek to convince people of sound doctrine over a period of time. But so often, patience is used as an excuse for negligence within Christ's church. Timothy was to devote himself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. And in verse 14, Paul exhorted him saying, Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things, immerse yourself in them, so that all may see your progress. Verses 14 and 15 are are very interesting. They're very important. Let me make a few very brief remarks about them. One, the gift that Paul refers to is the gift of teaching. And I think the other gifts required to do what Paul here exhorts Timothy to do in this letter. These are the gifts required for ministry. Two, Paul reminds Timothy that the gift was given to him by prophecy and through the laying on of the hands of the council of elders. I do not think that this means that Timothy did not have the gift of teaching or the other gifts required for pastoral ministry prior to the elders laying hands on them. Indeed, that would contradict what Paul has just said about the qualifications for overseers. Uh, Remember that someone is not to be appointed as an overseer if they do not manifest the gifts that are required to hold that office. Instead, when prophecies were uttered concerning Timothy and when the council of elders laid their hands on him to commission him, these gifts were confirmed in him and he was, then, he was then sanctioned to use them in the work of the ministry. God was the one who gave the gifts to Timothy and God did confirm these gifts in him through the church and its elders as they recognized these gifts and ordained Timothy to use them in the service of the church. Three, The council of elders that is mentioned here is not another office in the church, but is a reference to a plurality of elders or overseers. When Timothy was set apart for the work of the ministry, evidently, he was ordained, not by one elder, but by a plurality of elders and on behalf of the local church. They laid their hands on him to commission him to the work of the ministry. Four, Timothy is here being exhorted not to neglect the gift. He must not allow it to go dormant and to decay through disuse. Maybe we should say Timothy was not to be lazy or negligent. Instead, he was to practice these things. This means he was to cultivate these gifts through regular use. He was to immerse himself in them. This means that he was to devote himself to the ministry. And the result would be that all would see his progress. If a man is to be appointed to the office of overseer, elder or pastor, then he must meet the qualifications of 1 Timothy 3, which we have considered before. But I think it would be unfair to expect a young or new minister to immediately be a seasoned minister. Don't you agree? I hope you agree with that. No, he must be gifted for the work, but this gift that he has must be cultivated over time. That is what Paul here commands. He commands Timothy saying, devote yourself to this work. Don't neglect the gift that you have. And it is important that as you devote yourself to it, that that the members of the congregation see that progress is being made. 
You have a gift, but be sure to cultivate that gift. It needs to grow. The point that is being made here throughout this text is that pastors must teach. They must give themselves to this work. Now, a word of clarification is probably in order here. I do think our Constitution, the Constitution of Emmaus Reformed Baptist Church, is right to distinguish between pastors or elders who are pastors or elders who are set apart for the work of ministry more than others are. While every elder bears um, the responsibility to rule spiritually, and while every elder must be apt to teach, our Constitution does say that some will be more exclusively engaged in the details of ruling rather than teaching. In other words, not all pastors or elders need to be equally apt to teach, nor do they need to be equally devoted to teaching. Some will teach more, even much more than others, and others will devote themselves mainly to ruling. And this is good. It is fine. It is biblical, I think. In fact, uh, this is what Paul will mention in 1 Timothy 5.17. We'll come to it eventually. There he says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So there we do see that in Paul's mind, though all pastors must teach and be apt to teach according to the qualifications of 1 Timothy 3, in Paul's mind he did distinguish between elders who give themselves more exclusively to ruling rather than to teaching and those who give themselves more exclusively to, to teaching. All elders must rule and some will labor in preaching and teaching according to 1 Timothy 5.17. Again, the point that is being made in this sermon is that pastors in general are called to teach. And the church needs a pastor or pastors who will be devoted to this. For the Word of God is the nourishment of the church. The Word of God is the nourishment of the church. And that is why it is so vital for the Word of God to be read, to be explained, and for the congregation to be exhorted from the Scriptures. The Word is our spiritual bread. This is why Paul spoke to the Colossians, saying, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart to God. And so the word of Christ must dwell richly in us or among us as a congregation. The church needs pastors to teach. And this means that pastors must be trained in sound doctrine. Notice how in verse 6 Paul says, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. And so Timothy was trained. He was a trained man. He himself was instructed in the words of the faith. He himself possessed good doctrine. And this was why he was able to pass that along to others. He was able to put this good doctrine before others. Brothers and sisters, those who minister the Word of God to the congregation must be trained in the Word of God. Those who teach must have first received good teaching. Now, does this mean that anyone who ministers the Word in the church must first receive a seminary education? Have you ever thought about that? I don't think so. Seminaries are a wonderful thing. 
Not all seminaries are wonderful though. Some are not so good. They actually promote false doctrine. But some are wonderful. They provide a rather thorough education to ministers. Ministers or future ministers are there in seminaries exposed to the original languages, to church history, to creeds and confessions, to the demands of pastoral ministry, to, uh, to um, philosophy, to biblical and systematic theology, to name just a few things. A seminary education is a wonderful thing. It is very beneficial. And if a man is going to devote his life to the ministry, he should pursue a seminary education if he has the opportunity and the means to do so. But it is certainly possible for men to be trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine in other ways too. I hope you agree with this. Indeed, it is the responsibility of current pastors to see to it that men are adequately trained for the work of the ministry. This is what Paul asked of Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.2 where he said, And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. This is what Timothy was to do. He had been trained by Paul and he was to train others as well who would then devote themselves to the work of the ministry. Pastors are to teach and the church needs men who are gifted and qualified to minister the word if she is to thrive. Again, the word of God is our spiritual food. So how does this first point apply to us? How does this first point apply to us? I think it has obvious application to pastors and especially those who have been set apart and supported by the church to labor in preaching and teaching. One, pastors must be faithful in their teaching. They must work hard at it. They must devote themselves to it and be diligent in it. Their progress should be evident to all. Two, they must be sure to put good and sound doctrine before the congregation. Three, they must be they must make teaching a priority and not believe the lie that the church needs to be entertained. Four, they must have the courage to exhort the congregation from the Word of God. They must teach with authority and seek to move the congregation to think, to speak, and to act according to God's Word. This could be scary, by the way, brothers and sisters. It involves risk. It does involve risk. This requires a lot of work. But this is what ministers are called to do. They are to command. They are to read the Scriptures, exhort, and teach. This first point also has application for those who desire the office of elder or who have a desire to minister the word as a gifted brother within the congregation. By the way, did you know it is our belief that not only ordained elders may minister the word to the congregation, but gifted brothers too? That is technical language that I'm using here. Our confession speaks of gifted brothers in chapter 26, paragraph 11. And I want you to hear this. It says, although it be incumbent on the bishops or pastors of the churches to be instant, constant, in preaching the word by way of office, in other words, that is what they must do because they hold the office of pastor or elder, yet the work of preaching the word is not so peculiarly confined to them, but that others also gifted and fitted by the Holy Spirit for it and approved and called by the church may and ought to perform it. What is our confession saying there? Well, it is recognizing that though it is the job of pastors or elders to preach the Word, and though they are to devote themselves to the regular ministry of the Word, there may be others in the congregation that God has given the gift of teaching to, and the congregation may identify that and commission men to that kind of work, to minister the Word of God within the congregation. Others besides the elders may preach. 
By the way, this was different from the view that those um, who subscribe to the Westminster Confession of Faith held to in that day and even to this present day. Uh, these who preach may be called gifted brethren. They must be gifted and fitted by the Holy Spirit. They must be approved and called by the congregation. And so if you desire the office of elder or to serve as a gifted brother, here is the point. Pursue training. You will need to be trained in the words of the faith. You will need to have good and sound doctrine along with the other qualifications that are mentioned in Holy Scripture. And this first point applies to the congregation too. It applies to the congregation also. If pastors are called to teach, then that implies that congregations should be eager to be taught, doesn't it? Think of that. Look at what the Scriptures say about the church, the nature of the church. The church is to be a place where teaching happens. The church is to be a place where people are taught the words of Christ and to follow Christ. And so the implication here through the instructions that Paul has given to Timothy is that the church itself ought to be very eager to receive teaching. And so I might ask you, are you eager to be taught, brothers and sisters? Are you eager to hear God's word read, explained, and applied? Are you eager to receive sound doctrine? I actually think you are. I think you are. I was meeting with a a young couple this past week, um, newer to Emmaus. And one of the things that I get to do when new folks come around is explain to them our history and tell of the progression that has uh, taken place over the last 10 years. And as I I was reflecting upon the progression, we, we have come a long way, brothers and sisters, in 10 years' time. Those of you who were with us from the beginning know this. We have come a long way. Um, one of the things I was able to emphasize is that, you know, our f- people seem to be hungry for God's Word. And that seemed to be a quality of theirs from the beginning. We planted Emmaus almost 10 years ago, but from the beginning it seemed to me that a lot of our people were hungry to be taught. Let's consider theology. In fact, I'd never considered it before, but I see that it's important now. Let's study. Let's study the Word of God. And I pray that that desire to receive sound doctrine never goes away. I pray that you would grow in this more and more. We still have more to learn. We have not arrived. We certainly have not arrived. The Word of God is taught here in our morning worship. Sound doctrine is also taught in Sunday school and in the evening service. I do pray that you would come to receive that teaching so that more and more the Word of Christ might dwell in us richly. And I wonder, as another point of application, will you pray that the Lord would raise up more pastors and more gifted brothers to minister the Word of God and to support their training? Will you pray for that? Lord, give us the gift of more ministers. And as you're praying for that, I ask you, are you willing to support their training? This is needed. This church would benefit greatly from more ministers of the Word, To have more ministers of the Word might also enable us to plant churches, which is certainly a desire of ours. And if we have more men who are licensed to preach here, that would enable us to share them with other churches who are in need. There are other churches who are in need, who are hurting and having a difficult time filling their pulpit from Lord's Day to Lord's Day. And so, brothers and sisters, I am asking you to pray for this. Pray that God would bless us with more gifted brothers, even more elders and pastors. I will say we cannot make this happen. 
You cannot force this. You try to force this and you make a mess of things. God must give us the gift of ministers. He must call, fit, and gift men for this service. But we can pray and we can also prepare. We can prepare to support men to be trained for the work of the ministry. The second and final point of the sermon today is that pastors must pursue godliness. Pastors must pursue godliness. These are the two things that Paul exhorts Timothy to do in this passage. It's all kind of jumbled up in this text. It's not dealt with one thing and then the next. But throughout this passage, Paul says to Timothy, devote yourself to teaching the Scriptures and devote yourself to living a godly life. Ministers, of course, do more than this. But these are the two things that Paul highlights. Paul concludes this whole section in verse 16 by saying, Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Do you hear that summary statement there at the end of verse 16? Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. In other words, live holy, Timothy. Persist in the faith yourself and teach the faith to others. These are the two things that every minister must be sure to do. This theme of pursuing godliness permeates the entire passage. Look back with me at verse 6. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Did you hear that little phrase at the end? Timothy, you yourself have followed this good doctrine. Before Timothy taught others to walk in the faith, he himself walked in the faith. Look at verse 7. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. I think it is safe to say that Paul was referring to the teaching of the false teachers with the words irreverent silly myths. Their teachings about the law were mythical. They were not true. They were silly, meaning that they were empty and useless. And they were irreverent or godless, meaning that they produced only a superficial and hypocritical kind of religion. Timothy was to have nothing to do with these false teachings. He was to have nothing to do with this superficial form of religion. Rather, he was to train himself for godliness. The Greek word translated as train is gumnazo. Gumnazo. Can you hear it um, in the Greek? Uh, the connection to the word gym, gymnasium there. In fact, the two words are connected Gumnazo means to control oneself by thorough discipline. Athletes will go to the gymnasium to do what? To train their bodies. But here, Timothy is commanded to train for something else. Train yourself for godliness. And then Paul adds this explanation. For while bodily training is of some value... Godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also the life to come. I want you to notice something here. Paul does not say that bodily training is of no value. Did you catch that? Bodily training is of some value, he says. There is value to bodily training. And I think the Christian should take care of their body. It is a gift from God. Our lives are lived in the body. We serve God with the body. The body and soul are interrelated. And body, bodily discipline is connected to 
spiritual discipline in some ways. So as Christians, we should discipline our bodies. We should eat right. We should exercise. I think it is required of us to be good stewards of what God has given to us. But here, Paul contrasts the limited value of bodily training with the far greater value of training in godliness. Godliness, that is, living in a way that is pleasing to God and in obedience to His Word, holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. That is a contrast, isn't it, with bodily training. Uh, The bodily training holds promise, has value, for this life only. But godliness holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The rewards of godliness are great. The rewards are great in this life. Later in this letter, Paul will say, But godliness with contentment is great gain. Do you hear that? Do you want to know what is great gain, what is exceedingly precious and valuable? Here it is. To live a godly life and to be content. This is great gain. And godliness also holds promise for the life to come. Godliness in this life produces heavenly rewards. The same cannot be said of bodily training. Perhaps you have noticed that our culture places a very, very high value on bodily training and a very, very low value on godliness. Have you noticed this? Look, for example, at how much our athletes are paid. Consider that. Our culture even values their opinions on political, ethical, and philosophical matters. Why? I don't know. They are very skilled at playing with a ball. Why we would listen to them about weighty matters, I'm not sure. What have they done to earn this respect except train the body? And yet those with true intellectual and spiritual abilities are often disregarded. The church must be countercultural in this regard. We must learn to place a very high value on godliness and have a more sober esteem for bodily training. You, adult members of this congregation, must do this, and you need to teach your children to do this. Who do your children look up to? Who are their heroes? Who do you emphasize and tell of within the household? Do you put Athletes before them constantly saying, here is what you should grow up to be like, here is what you should pursue? Or do you put men of substance, women of substance before them, spiritual people, people who have attained wisdom? It is important for us to be countercultural here. And it is especially important for ministers to train for godliness. Is there anything more damaging to the life of the church than for a minister who teaches and exhorts others to be godly, to be not godly himself? It's very sad when you see this. A minister of the Word of God who falls, who stumbles. We all sin, brothers and sisters. All ministers sin. But when a minister lives a life of sin or has some major moral failing, God's people are so badly hurt by it. In verse 9 we read, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Well, what saying? What saying is Paul referring to here? I think it is a saying we have just considered. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also the life to come. That is the saying that Paul is referring to. He says, this saying is trustworthy and full of, of, 
deserving of full acceptance. Evidently, this was a well-known and applied uh, saying in the early church. The whole church adopted it. It wasn't just for ministers, therefore. That's the point that I'm making. This is a very good saying for all Christians to adopt. Perhaps it was especially common within the church at Ephesus where Timothy ministered. The gymnasium was very popular in, in Ephesus. And perhaps the Christians in Ephesus adopted this saying in response to it. In other words, they were laboring themselves to be countercultural. They lived in a culture that was not entirely different from ours. They saw that those around them had an obsession with the gymnasium. And they said, they said often, frequently, it was a saying, for while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. And so are you training for godliness, brothers and sisters? Are you training for it? Are you working hard at it? Are you striving to think, speak, and act in a way that is pleasing to God and obedience to His Word? Are you training for godliness with the kind of intensity that a runner trains for as he prepares for a marathon or a boxer trains for a fight? Are you training for godliness with that kind of intensity? That is what Paul is calling Timothy to do, and that is what you ought to do as well. And to speak frankly, sometimes we do not progress in godliness because we do not really try. We do not really try. We in the Reformed tradition do like to emphasize the fact that God must change us, don't we? He is sovereign in salvation. He is sovereign in sanctification. But it is also true that we must train ourselves for godliness. We must exert great effort to make progress in godliness. Stop being content with your sin. Brothers and sisters, stop being content with your ungodly thoughts, with your ungodly attitudes, with your ungodly words, with your ungodly deeds. Stop being content with these things and train for godliness. Strive after godliness. Verse 10, For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. To toil means to engage in hard work, in plying difficulties and trouble. To strive means to fight or to fight with weapons even. And so are you striving for godliness? Are you fighting the good fight? Or have you grown soft and complacent spiritually speaking? Why do we toil and strive after godliness? The text says, because our hope is in Jesus and through Him we have been saved. That's my paraphrase of it. Notice Paul does not say, for to this end we toil and strive so that we might be saved. Does he say that? Rather, he teaches that we strive for godliness because we have been saved by Christ and our hope is in Him. This is a massively important thing to notice. We pursue holiness because we have been made holy. We strive after godliness out of gratitude for the grace that God has bestowed upon us in Christ Jesus. We do not strive for godliness in order to enter into heaven, but because heaven is our home, we Give it our all to prepare to enter into that place. It is only fitting that we as children of God should live as children of God. Notice that God is here said to be the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. All people clearly means all kinds of people here. It is those who believe from amongst the Jews and the Gentiles, rich and poor, slave and free, who are saved. These are God's elect they are the ones for whom Christ died. 
Verse 12, there Paul says, Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Being a young pastor does have its challenges. The word young here, uh, or youth, may be used to refer to men even under the age of 40. Uh, Most would agree that Timothy was in his 30s when Paul wrote to him. As a young minister, some some were tempted to look down upon him. But Timothy was to overcome this by setting the believers an example in speech and conduct and love, faith and purity. In other words, Timothy would earn the respect of those older than him by being godly in his words and deeds, and also in his heart. He was to serve in love. He was to maintain a strong faith. He was to be pure in the whole of life, is what is commanded on him, of him here. We come now again to verse 16, where all of this is brought to a conclusion. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching, Paul says. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so you will save both yourself and your hearers. Ministers need to recognize and remember that there is a lot on the line. Ministers do not save people, Christ does. But ministers save themselves and those who hear them through the gospel they preach. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ that saves. And so ministers must be sure to preach that gospel and to live according to it themselves so that the name of God be not reviled. Brothers and sisters, this second point of the sermon applies to you. Though Paul is here addressing ministers of the gospel, he is also, he is also addressing you and putting before you the, necessary, the necessity for you to grow in godliness. Is it not also right for you to live in a way that agrees with the gospel you claim to believe? You share this gospel with others. I hope that you do. You give people a reason for the hope that is in you. But be sure to live in a way that agrees with that gospel that you proclaim and to adorn the gospel with good deeds. And would you be sure to pray for your ministers as well, that they would grow in godliness. For this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. While bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also the life to come. Let's bow together for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, would you bless this congregation with ministers of the word of God. Would you bless them with that gift now and for generations to come? We do pray that you would raise up from amongst us more men to minister the word of God in this place. You must give the gift and we are asking for it, Lord. Father, give this congregation a hunger for your word. Father, may they be eager to receive the faith and sound doctrine. And Father, may we all live godly before you. May we not be hypocrites, Lord. Uh, Father, may we not bring shame to your name, but honor instead, as we live according to the gospel that we have believed. God, help us to strive after these things. Help us to work hard at godliness. But we confess that we will not be able to make any progress at all if you do not strengthen us. So give us the strength. These things we pray in Christ's name. Amen.